Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Pete Callender here, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So Joe Biden, the president, vetoed his very first bill. Give it up, everybody. Joe, get your first veto. Good for you. Um, this was uh, to undo a Republican or to block a Republican uh, anti-ESG bill. Okay? ESG, environmental, social, justice, really should be ESJG. And governance, okay? So this is what um, the long march through the institutions has also been doing. Uh, You've got companies like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street. They control trillions of dollars. People's retirement plans and pension funds and stuff. They then use our money and uh, they get influence in the boardrooms of these major companies because they buy shares, Right. It's not their money. Larry Fink over at BlackRock, he doesn't own all that money. I mean, he's a wealthy guy now. But all of the money that he uses to extract policy changes in in the boardrooms, that's not his money. He's managing my money. I have money that is part of... Like, it's in a portfolio. I've got a a financial guy that handles all of that. But I see the emails that come through. And every now and again, oh, look at that. There's a BlackRock one. They're in everything. BlackRock is in everything. State Street, Vanguard. And they are taking my money, your money, pension funds, and they're, they're forcing companies to make decisions that are not in the best interest of the company and the shareholders. That's what ESG is doing. And they dress it up under this uh, 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 under this labeling of environmental, social justice, and governance. And they say, oh, well, these, are, these are good things. And ironically, the good things that they're doing, they're all long-term investments. So you're screwed if you're a short-term investor. Um, they're all about long-term investments, but they're all, I'm sure it's just coincidence, they're all policy prescriptions from the left. I know. Who would have thought? It's just complete coincidence. Recent signs of a pushback against ESG have been encouraging. There's a long, long way to go, though. There is too much money and too much power resting in the preservation of ESG and the rent seekers ecosystem that it nurtures. Nevertheless, We are seeing some early signs of resistance, and they have produced something of a panic among ESG defenders, from Mike Bloomberg to Al Gore to the Financial Times. And naturally, the New York Times, too, is doing its bit as well. Indeed, the newspaper has come out with a podcast. What is ESG, and why are Republicans so mad about it? It's it's merely leftism. I don't know why anybody would be opposed to it. Um, 
They say it's in the podcast, the New York Times people. This is uh, what's his face? Barbaro who's on the NPR. Uh, he does NPR stuff, too. Michael Barbaro. So it's easier to gin up popular support for a campaign to oppose corporate wokery than to base it on a defense of shareholder rights. Oh, I'm sorry. This is actually from Andrew Stutterford. Andrew Stutterford, he's National Review writer. But he is, and he is exactly right about this. It's easier to gin up popular support for a campaign to oppose corporate wokeism than to base it on a defense of shareholder rights or a rejection of corporatism. Right? These are causes that probably don't have as big of a populist appeal. Right? Admittedly, admittedly, you're not going to whip up the populist mob against, you know, reject shareholders being deprived of rights. It's just not going to be the same. It doesn't have the same rallying cry effect. Right? But if you could say corporate wokeism, oh, I'm against that, as we've detailed why you should be against, quote, wokeism in its modern framing. It's far easier for defenders of ESG and stakeholder capitalism to frame the debate as another chapter in the culture wars than to address the serious threat to both property rights and to democracy that their efforts represent. But make no mistake, like, that is what's at stake here, right? Property rights. It's my property. I'm allowing you to invest it because I hired the service, whatever, and I'm I'm sort of... Uh, corralled into these products like a 401k for example right if you go to work for a company it's got a 401k and it, you know you take advantage of the the uh, contributions from your employer and so they they sort of corral you into these products and then they take that money and then they invest it and now they control what decisions get made and now they're leveraging that control to extract policy concessions the big one was Exxon. That was that that was the first flexing of the BlackRock muscle, where the board of directors uh, of Exxon were told, "You have to put a couple of these uh, environmentalist wackos onto your board." And Exxon said, "Hell no!" And so they said, "Okay," and they started selling off all the shares and it started tanking Exxon's share price. And the company was looking like they were worried they were going to go out of business; they'd be taken over. Somebody would, would come in, swoop in, buy up the shares, and take them over, put them out of business. And so they relented. And the message was clear, right? Bend the knee. The New York Times description of ESG, they call it the principle that investors should look beyond just whether a company can make a profit and take into account other factors. <laughs> um... That's fine if you would like to invest your money like that. I would like to invest my money in something that produces a return. Now, granted, I do not want to be investing in sort of blood diamond stuff or, I guess, solar panels for that matter or lithium batteries. But you know, I, I would try to find things that are not terrible products or services. But no, I'm not interested in subsidizing all sorts of left-wing causes because – it lets you virtue signal at your cocktail party. Writing recently in the Wall Street Journal, Andy Puzder, looking at the performance of companies that were politically neutral against ESG-registered funds, the results, not good news for the ESG camp. The data indicate that, as common sense would suggest, companies that focus on profits outperform companies that don't. 
No way. If I wait a minute, if I focus on profits, I'm going to make more profits. And if I don't focus on profits, I don't make more profits. This is so weird. Just a little bit of life advice, too, for the kids. Have goals. Tell people what your goals are. Because they more than likely, they will be able to help you achieve them. Have goals and tell other people what they are. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It truly does. Because when people know, oh, yeah, that Pete guy, he, he was talking about this thing that he was looking to do. And at some point, they run into somebody who says something and they think, oh, you know what? Pete was talking about that the other day, and that was his goal. And then they tell that person, you should talk to my friend Pete. And then they connect you, and you can help, uh, they can help, you can help each other. Regarding the emphasis placed on long-term investing, maybe it's too cynical to suggest this, but maybe, maybe this is a way of avoiding difficult questions about short-term returns. I know, I know, Just I'm just spitballing here. Maybe... The focus on the long-term payout is a way that they just get to ignore all of the concerns that in the short term, you're hemorrhaging money. (laughs) You're not doing very well. There is no intrinsic financial merit in investing for the long term. All that matters is the price paid for the investment when you buy it and the price paid when you sell it. That is it. In this discussion on the New York Times podcast, the New York Times' Michael Barbaro discusses the inroads that ESG has made. And yes, it has. It's not just the companies. From this emerges a whole cottage industry of ratings agencies, companies like Bloomberg and Dow Jones and Thomson Reuters, S&P Global, Moody's, who now start issuing ESG scores. And then with those scores, fund managers, as big institutional investors, they buy these big chunks of companies and put them in portfolios that retirement funds that invest in, and then they start creating ESG funds. Like, this is the problem. This is the problem. You've created a ranking system based on political agenda and ideology. Yeah, this is the ecosystem that is flourishing. It's an ecosystem of value destruction. This piece by uh, Andrew Stutterford at National Review. He's uh, just just tearing down and dragging the New York Times and their stupid podcast on ESG. There's a great uh, quote that he highlighted here uh, from one of the uh, the guests on this podcast who, his name is Gels. Is that his name? David Gels, a climate correspondent, of course. So he says it's a, there's a whole cottage industry of ratings agencies on these ESG scores. And then he says with those scores, fund managers, that is big institutional investors that buy big chunks of companies and put them in portfolios that retirement funds that invest in, they start creating ESG funds. And Michael Barbaro says, wow. Yes, wow indeed. This is the ecosystem flourishing under ESG, an ecosystem of value destruction populated by rent seekers. So to understand this sort of financial market phenomenon, you got to follow the money. One of the reasons that ESG has attracted the support of major asset managers is that it's a label that often brings higher fees. 
So the system also makes money for consultants of one sort or another, right? They charge for defining what ESG is, and then they charge for helping companies raise those ESG scores. They charge for counting those scores to rate how well the companies are doing. This is how you end up with like, what was it, uh, Tesla having a lower ESG score than ExxonMobil? Like, th- th- that's, just, that's just dumbassery. It was because Elon bought Twitter and they were super angry about it. New York University finance professor Aswath Damodaran, I think is how he pronounces it, says, why is ESG being sold so aggressively? Well, because accountants, measurement services, fund managers, and consultants are all on the ESG gravy train with stockholders and taxpayers footing the bill. Corporate CEOs are buying into ESG because it makes them accountable to no one. To no one. ESG, because think about that, right? If you're going to be pegging your longevity and your success to an ESG rating that, oh, by the way, is given to you because of the consultants you hire to raise that score, All you have to do is pay them, they raise your score, and you're golden. And even if the returns on investors' uh, assets are not high, you're being right. You're you're adhering to that ESG score. You're you're selling your success pegged to the ESG score, not to the return on those investors' investments. ESG is at its core a feel-good scam that's enriching consultants measurement services, and fund managers while doing close to nothing for the businesses and investors it claims to help, and it's doing even less for society. Institutional investors who embrace ESG are playing with other people's money as well, as I mentioned earlier. Towards the end of this uh, piece, when corporations participated in the political process through lobbying, right, They were acting in their own economic interest. The political agenda, yes, it overlapped like a pro-business Republican Party agenda, but the linkage there was always going to be narrow. It was always going to be, it's like the equivalent of a constituent. When the agenda is no longer connected to the proper purpose of a corporation, well, that gives the company's managers the power to use corporate money, other people's money, to pursue objectives that should not even be within their purview. Under those circumstances, they're not acting as constituents. They're acting as activists. The ESG debate has become politicized. And that should be welcomed. I welcome it. ESG is political. At its core, it is political. If it were just about economic return, this would not be the case. So it's only fitting that it's now the subject of increased political scrutiny by elected officials. That's how democracies are supposed to work. Tell me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Yeah, exactly. This guy on the New York Times podcast, he concluded by saying, if you ask the CEO of a big company, they'll tell you um, that they are committed to going to net zero carbon emissions in the next couple of decades. They're totally on board with this. They'll tell you they believe in a diverse workforce uh, that's healthy uh, and that's productive. Uh, They're all for good governance. 
But then in the same breath, they will tell you off the record that if they never have to say the word ESG again, they'd be totally fine with that. The whole debate has become a political liability that they don't necessarily like dealing with every day, even as they continue to fundamentally believe in a lot of the priorities as the right thing to do in the long term, of course. So whether or not we'll call it ESG two years from now, these policy priorities are not going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) I love that. So whether we call it ESG two years from now or not. Oh, you mean like the brand becomes toxic and you have to rebrand it because the messaging? See what I mean? Yet another example of it. It's like you could set your watch by it. Not that anybody does that anymore, especially with daylight saving time. Don't even get me started on that one. Don't even get me started on the dumbassery of daylight saving time. Okay. All right. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old school traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. Uh, no, I kid, I kid. No, seriously, though, I wonder, does the Charlotte area transit system, do they have high ESG scores? Because that would explain why their uh, their fleet is uh, falling apart. E- I mean, because light rail probably scores very high on the environmental score, right? Because it's not diesel, right? It's a train. It's an electric train. And we all know electricity, it, you know, it runs off of, uh, I think, unicorn burps. Um, yeah, Charlotte's light rail cars are aging. New report urges fast safety action. Headline from WBTV, David Hodges' report. Citing a, uh, they filed a Freedom of Information request to get this. A final report on Charlotte's light rail derailment from last May raises more safety concerns about the maintenance of the vehicles and procedures for making sure that trains in need of inspections are taken off the tracks. Officials from NCDOT who reviewed the report offered blistering critiques. Oh, gosh, I don't even know who to pull for in this now. On the one hand, it's NCDOT. On the other hand, it's cats. Who do I root for? I'll just root for injuries. NZDOT reviewed the report, offered blistering critiques of some of Kat's initial findings, and found that failure to immediately perform midlife and truck overhauls of the trains was not acceptable. By the way, when we covered this topic, what, last week was it? When the news first broke that, Oh, there was a train derailment. There was a light rail car derailment back in May, and Katz never told anybody. They called it just a malfunction. And then we find out later on, after all the Katz leadership is all either suspended, fired, or quits, and then they they stick an interim guy in there, Brent Cagle, who's like, holy moly, this is a mess. And he gave a, uh, a, a report to the city council where he talked about this very thing, this derailment, and... um and now BTV went and got the report going back and forth between DOT and uh, Katz about this thing. And it turns out, as we surmised in our discussion of it last Tuesday, which was poor maintenance. 
they did not keep up on the maintenance. They cited right this major like bearing issue, these bearings that had corroded, and that means that they were not being properly maintained. We had two different people call in, right? They had expertise in the area, and they were like, look, the reason that happens is lack of maintenance. They were not keeping up with the regreasing of the bearings. You got to keep doing that. And then another woman called in and she talked about the trucks, which are, if you think about it, um, it's the whole apparatus. I mean, well, yeah, it's the whole apparatus that houses all of the wheels, right? And they're on this like separate uh, sort of plate, you know, and that connects to the main car of the train. So the the sort of the trucks that hold the wheels together, they're called trucks. It's not a truck. It's not a vehicle. It's the it's the assembly. Think of it like the roll, like a not, uh, skateboard. On the skateboard, right, you get the wheel assembly, the thing that holds all the wheels into one piece, and you just bolt that piece onto the board. That's the truck system. Okay. So uh, to NCDOT, what caused the train to derail is clear. In the comments section on the CATS report, a DOT official says the root cause is poor maintenance, which led to the wheel bearing failure. Despite the certainty from NCDOT, CATS Safety and Security General Manager David Moskowitz wrote in response, quote, deferred maintenance possibly contributed to the failure of the bearing and is properly listed as a contributing factor. So they tried to dress it up. You see that? NCDOT says, no, this is the cause. And Katz is like, well, you know, it's possibly contributed, maybe. NCDOT's reference to maintenance is regarding midlife and truck overhauls that the train cars need, according to the manufacturer, Siemens. The report says that the specific car that derailed was due for an axle overhaul at 10 years. It had been operating without the overhaul for 12. Oh, missed it by that much. Conducting the overhaul is critical. According to NCDOT, quote, cats must explain what actions will be taken to reduce safety risks. Operating these trains for the next two years without overhauls is unacceptable. Since the report went, uh, was sent on February 28th, Katz's interim CEO, Brent Cagle, has announced his efforts to get Siemens to conduct the overhauls quickly. NCDOT has forced Katz to take some of the light rail vehicles with the most mileage out of service. Well, that's a new development. And no light rail vehicles are permitted to go over 35 miles an hour. In the contributing factors section of the report, Katz wrote that the overdue maintenance issues were a result of, no, not racism, no, COVID, that's right, supply chain issues and staffing shortages caused by COVID and decisions made at the procurement and finance level, but we won't focus on that. Okay, before Katz employees knew the train had derailed, the operator driving the light rail car called the rail operations control center or as i like to call it the rock and the operator the but the, the train driver the engineer called the rock called operation control and said the train was wobbling back and forth really bad and ncdot says that somewhere and i don't know which word it is but one of those words is a trigger word I guess this is sort of like, I forget what book it was I read a long time ago where they, there was like some crazy mom and the, the stories told through the, the voice of the, the child who's now an adult, but talked about how 
His mom was crazy, and when they would go into um, uh, they would go into uh, uh, like public places, like airports, and they would you, and they would hear somebody call out a name, and the, and the mom always thought that anytime somebody was being paged overhead, that that was a code for law enforcement, <laughs> and they were coming to get her. But apparently there's like some trigger word. Maybe you don't want the passengers to hear you say, oh, my gosh, we're going to die. You know, like you don't want to say something like that. But I don't know that wobbling back and forth really bad. That seems like it might inspire some panic. But apparently one of those, I'm thinking it might be wobbling. One of those is a trigger word. And the um, the rock person, the controller, the rail operations control center person said to the driver of the train hey why don't you try to move it to the scaly bark station just up the line there <laughs> just can you just get it up to the station there because he stopped it in the middle between stations when the operator said he did not feel moving the train was safe the rock employee instructed him to turn the vehicle off and then back on and, and reset it and then try to move it again have you tried to turn it off and to turn it back on again like control alt reset and then yeah, fire that baby back up and then br- and then roll it into scaly bark and so NCDOT starts wondering, so what's the deal here? Are you not trusting your engineers when they tell you something is wrong like this and you're telling them just ignore the wobbling back and forth really bad? And, and, it, so, and then, of course, Katz is like, oh, we're also understaffed. And so NCDOT is like, well, why are you understaffed? NCDOT noted also that rail car maintenance did not complete a walk around before attempting to move the train when it when they stopped it and then they showed up and they were like okay we'll get everybody off and uh, now we're going to move it and they never did a walk around where they would have noticed oh hey look at that uh, the rail uh, the the trains off the rail so they NCDOT is suggesting that the people at operations control at the rock that they don't trust the engineers to accurately convey safety concerns. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good story, WBTV.com. Much lengthier than I went over. Those are the highlights, though. Uh, Charlotte's light rail cars are aging. New report urges fast safety action. WBTV's report, they got the Freedom of Information request uh, in, and they got the report from NCDOT, which basically said CATS has not been maintaining uh, their fleet. They were supposed to go in for a, what, midlife work and maintenance check or whatever, and they never did. Uh, been two years late. And that's, they said, the failure of the bearings that caused all of the, caused the derailment and all of the, the added expense. Now, Katz has not been doing ongoing maintenance. That's a pretty big deal. Mark points out on Twitter, uh, so in essence, the system failed, huh, Pete? That's it. That's a, that is that is Brett Winterbull who comes on three to six here on WBT. He always talks about that. That's like the excuse is always the system failed on everything. Where it's like you can't blame an individual. It's the system. The system failed. It's completely appropriate in this regard. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at on uh, on Twitter. They're like, oh, we've got. Uh, Mecklenburg County Commissioner Lee Altman sent a scathing letter about cats to Metropolitan Transit Commission members. The MTC meets tomorrow. She says cats owes the public an apology. Um, 
And and then you've got where is it here? Earlier today. Well, where'd it go? Yeah, here it is. Two hours later. How is Katz this inept and in this much disarray? John Lewis, the former leader, really could not have done a better job running our transit system into the ground. Right. Well, well, who was supposed to be who was supposed to be managing and overseeing Katz and John Lewis? Who is that? Is it the Charlotte City Council? Or is it the city manager? Right, the city manager makes that hire, no? So now, of course, you're getting people that are like, well, maybe we need a full-time city council. That's going to get the job done. I'm seeing it. There's a guy here. Joseph is he's like, as formed, the Charlotte City Council is supposed to give oversight. City staff is supposed to respond to it. To me, being understaffed and part-time leads city council to overly depend on city staff as oversight partners rather than subjects. This is plainly dysfunctional governance in one of the causes. Cats needs elected oversight. Okay. Well, they, they do have that. That's the whole point of the um that's the whole point of the city council and getting reports from cats. They do regularly. They get reports from cats all the time. Now, I'm just gonna throw this out there. Just spitballing here, but maybe it's possible that the city council members lack the expertise to oversee the Charlotte area transit system. I'm just saying, maybe some of the people on that body don't know what they're doing. Right? That's possible. All right. Um, One last thing. Uh, Condolences and our prayers uh, for comfort and for peace to the family and the friends of Parks Helms. Uh, a new Parks, when he was uh, county commissioner here in Mecklenburg County, low those many years ago, like 20 years ago, longtime county commissioner, chairman of the county commission. He of the famous, uh, it's just the side of a cup of slaw when raising everyone's taxes. I will say he he would never shy away from an interview with me, Um he would he, he treated me with respect. I was a young cub reporter out on the beat. I sat through all the county commission meetings. Um, I also have, I thought this was pretty nice, that uh, Jim Puckett, former county commissioner, uh, heard about Parks passing away at the age of 87 over the weekend. And he said, sadly, I just heard that my longtime friend and political nemesis, Parks Helms, died this morning. Though we fought fervently against each other's political agendas, we did so with a ton of respect and good humor. He taught me much of what I know regarding political gamesmanship and strategy. Much of it learned the hard way. What was never a question, regardless of how correct or incorrect his path was in others' minds, his goal was to achieve what was best for the citizens of Mecklenburg County. Rest in peace, my friend, and many thanks. Jim Puckett, longtime county commissioner as well, a Republican. Parks Helms, a Democrat. Um... And uh, I'll never forget when Helms first uh, when he when he first thought he lost that race, and then it turned out they found enough ballots for him to win, coming like second. His wife Eleanor was so excited that he lost because she wanted him to get out of politics and be back at home with the grandbabies and to go traveling around and stuff. And so she was super excited, and then I had to call him back up. 
He was on his way home, and I had to call him and tell him, hey, they just counted a whole bunch of extra ballots, and it turns out you won. <laughs> and uh, Eleanor was not happy. She was not happy in the car ride home. <laughs> but, uh, again, rest in peace to uh, uh, Parks Helms and uh, condolences for all of his friends and family. I actually... Super weird. I actually thought of him this weekend. Just out of the blue, I just thought, I wonder what Parks Helms is up to. Coincidentally. All right. Brett Winterbull coming up next. Stick around. I will see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.